So hello, thank you for joining us today. Um, this is reInvent, if you hadn't known that before. It is reInvent, thank you for coming. I am Nathan Case. I'm Andrew Krug. Uh, we are both security geeks. I work for AWS. I work for Mozilla. So this is not a just focus on AWS type of a talk. This is, look, this is kind of go do runbooks. Um, so interestingly, you all decided to come to a runbook talk. I, I think that's kind of cool. Who's excited about runbooks? Okay, wow. So generally, this isn't an exciting topic. That's a little awkward. <laughs> Put it in the survey. <laughs> so last year I did this talk at a very small room uh, a couple of times with a bunch of people. Uh, my slides actually went white after the first slide and I had to do it cold with no slides, which was really awkward. Um, it got such a good response though that we decided to make it a bigger session this year and kind of go a little bit more in depth. And when I did it last year, I didn't have Andrew with me, so thank you. Um, it was very much a discussion from my point of view or AWS's point of view, and I think what we'll see today is a very much, a much more broad, much more focused on um, general principles that I wouldn't have given you. So I'm really happy to have Andrew here. All right, so why do we do this? So a little bit about me. I do incident response for AWS. I am a security strategist. I get to go out and talk to all of you on that really awkward Monday morning when you realize that you don't have run books and you really, 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 really want them. So that Monday morning where you have that security event, I get to come talk to you. Now, when that happens, I get to see all these anti-patterns, I get to see things that you really shouldn't have been doing and you were, and nobody knows why you were. So a lot of this talk comes from that moment of my life and your lives collectively where I have to sit down and go, what? So today, we're gonna to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about some of the things that come off in the uh, maturity model of who you are and who you will be as you go through this, this uh, progress. Today, we're gonna to talk about how to look at your environment and understand where and why you need to create runbooks based on risk. So we don't just go ahead and randomly make runbooks. Runbooks aren't something that we just start writing out to begin with. We try to focus on different portions of our environment using a risk model that Andrew will very adequately, adequately? I hope it's adequate at least. <laughs> Adequ adequately cover later. Um, we want you to feel empowered. We want you to understand that there are awkward conversations that will come out of runbook creation. There are things that have to deal with GRC that will come out of runbook creation. And some of those conversations you need to have more than just your security team involved. I had a couple of you tell me before we started the talk that you were just starting runbook creation and your security team was working on it really hard. How many of you actually had legal, HR, or the development team involved in the runbook creation? A Little bit? We'll talk a little bit why, about why you involve legal and HR. And then we're gonna talk about what happens afterwards. So, we have the ability to create a runbook, we understand that we've got the tool, but we both have the technical and non-technical scenarios that go along with a runbook. A lot of the stuff we'll talk about today, about half of it, doesn't have anything to do with technology. Sorry. Now that said, we did feel a little guilty. Yes, yeah, so we have bonus uh, today, which is that we're gonna be sharing for the second time, the first time was just yesterday, uh, because this is a repeat, uh, a little bit of code that will demonstrate how to take all these concepts from this abstract idea of runbooks through risk management to the practical, which is uh, security automation uh, to drive IR in Fargate. Which is pretty cool. It's a good time to do IR in Fargate. They don't seem very impressed about IR in Fargate. <laughs> there we go, thank you. <laughs> all right. So, actually everything at this point I believe has already had, oh, not quite. You are currently missing the last session, the 301 there. Um, everything else has already happened. We already did DevSecOps integration yesterday and the day before. The good news about the first uh, Sec 302 talk here that has to do with some of the runbook creation that we're talking about today is that it's open sourced. So you guys can all go figure out what Sec 302 is in YouTube, go download the actual lab, and you can run it inside your own enterprises, inside your own companies. It will give you a good walkthrough of how to create a DevSecOps approach in your company and why you should have a runbook. Um, we have the how to prepare and respond to security incidents. That was something that Paul uh, Hawkins and I did on Monday. 
Um, I think most of you, due to flight issues, were probably still trying to get here. Um, however, it was recorded. You can go back and watch that. And that talks about kind of the first part of this, as we start looking at how to, as a company, as an environment, begin to understand what happens in a security event. Then we have automate, automating threat detection. That's a workshop that is actually going on right now. So I'm sorry that you're missing it. Glad you're here. Um, that one is also open source, and you can download it from our website and do it internally with your own company. It's another really good place to start learning about why and how to do runbooks. So, story time. So, this talk generate this, this talk kind of came from me being an incident responder at AWS, me seeing a lot of security events that occur in my customers, um, having to work through some things with them. And so, what we've got here is kind of a walkthrough of a quote unquote specific event. It's not really a specific event. It didn't really happen this way. This is a combi combination of three or four different events that I had to deal with this year for customers and kind of talks through a couple of the different weak points and choices that they had made prior to that event occurring. The goal here is to talk through how this event occurred, why a runbook or a risk assessment would have changed that, and then kind of work through how we can measure that or implement that differently in the future. So, your Monday morning. Yay, Monday morning. Who likes Monday mornings? Good stuff? Yeah, Monday mornings. They're quiet, right? You get a little bit of time Monday mornings, you do a little bit of email, life is good. What's this? It's quite quiet. It's quiet. Email issues. Who's had this email? Yeah, this is an awkward email. Be honest, Andrew. <laughs> this happens, right? And if we're all honest with each other, we expect this at some point, down in the deepest, darkest portions of our soul, that this will occur to us. So, the reality of this talk, right, the why we do this talk, is because we know this is gonna happen. You know this is gonna happen, and there's some fear, there's some effort that you have to get around the fact that you're afraid of how to deal with this. We want you to get into, enjoy doing run books, right? So quotes from anti-patterns. My favorite personal quote so far this year has been, What's a run book? Awkward. So, hi, I'm Nathan Case. I'm the incident responder assigned to help you. Can I see your run book, please? Literally the first thing I ask for. When the response is, what's a run book? We know there's an issue. We encrypt everything. We can't possibly have an event. Hmm. That's true, I'm happy that your data is encrypted and I'm really happy that you don't have to worry about data spillage potentially. But the reality of you not having a runbook or not knowing how to deal with an event isn't mitigated by the fact that everything is encrypted. You still have to engage with the fact, the reality, that at some point in the future you will most likely have a security event. And to be fair, much, much of this really turns into the intern rule in my mind. Do you guys know what the intern rule is? The intern rule is, if I get an intern and let him have access to any account in my IT architecture, whether that be AWS or my data center, something bad is going to happen, right? And it's not like I'm trying to be mean to interns. We were all that age once. But the reality is they have no background, they have no understanding of what's going on, and they're gonna push buttons. And those buttons may be good buttons or bad buttons. Um, we have a little bit of, well, actually the clock isn't working, but um, there we go. Um, as, we look at, as we look at interns in general, we have to wonder sometimes what happens. And my favorite intern story thus far has been uh, a very nice customer was working with an intern, and that intern decided that, you know what, I'm gonna try to help out. And so his boss said, you know what, we could really reduce our AWS spending maybe. Why don't you go look at our AWS accounts and figure out how we reduce that? And so the intern went in and he logged in and he started looking at all these accounts. And he saw a bunch of X1 instances. You guys know what X1 instances are? How much memory is in an X1? Shout it out. About a terabyte, right? Give or take. So what did the intern do? He looked at the CPU. How fast, how, how, much, is, how much is actually, oh, the CPU is using 0.4%, 2%. Why are these things running? Somebody should have shut them down. So what normally runs on an X1? High memory compute. There's a specific three-letter product, SAP. Does SAP always run at a high CPU utilization? 
The intern was very polite and very nice and very helpful and turned off the SAP environment and saved them a whole bunch of money. <laughs> Kinda. IR is run by the security team. So when I come in and talk to you and somebody looks at me and says, well, it's just the security team here. We don't know what that developer's app does. We don't know who's responsible for SAP. We don't understand what the tagging is. We don't have a runbook based on what's going on right now. We have to ask ourselves, we, whoop, how can we extend that team and make that team bigger and better and have a bigger footprint in security? That account is Shadow IT. Who has Shadow IT? Do you all know why Shadow IT occurs? Corporate's too slow. So in Paul and I's talk on Monday, we actually kind of covered this a bit. The big, the culture of no, the big red cross out sign, that's kind of the problem. If you have shadow IT going on in your, your company, you probably have a perception that you are the office of no. You are the one slowing development down. So today we're gonna to talk about how to get developers involved in this runbook and playbook creation and how to make them feel enfranchised to what you're doing. Now, our pretend reality. We're gonna get into what actually happened here, kinda. So, in this pretend reality that didn't have any runbooks, we had some bastion hosts. What operationalists, what admins like bastion hosts? Bastion hosts are pretty good, right? We've all used bastion hosts for 20 years. Good stuff. Had a little bit of tools, a little bit of stuff. We had a multi-account set up. So they had a couple of accounts. They had some services they were using. They were running on Fargate. Yay, Fargate. So why are we talking about this today? That's because implementing a security program at any scale requires thought, measurement, and action. Governance, compliance, and layered defenses are just some of the ways that we do that. But really, what we want to drive home here today is that security teams just can't be that first and last line of defense. Because the world and the environment around us has changed. We need to make sure that we keep in mind the fact that one team isn't going to do it. We can't have one security team pull off the whole thing. We have to make sure that we keep in mind the goal. The goal is to keep the system running. We need to make sh choices in a clear and honest way. How do we do that? How do we pick up our tech debt? Because sometimes we need to pick up the tech debt, and largely that's based on the risk, and sometimes it's okay to kind of defer that tech debt and just drive forward, right? But when do we make those hard choices? And we have to make them honestly. So we have this reality, which is security, right? which is this definition of uh, the idea of safety. And we implement that in a number of ways. And in cybersecurity, that comes in the form of a security program, right? Which hopefully actually makes us feel safe and we actually are safe. But those can be wildly different things. So how do we do that, right? How do we know that we're actually safe? Measurement, right? And I'm just gonna talk to you about one of the ways that we do that at Mozilla. We tend to take a risk-based approach because we're about a thousand person company and we have lots of services that we need to protect internally and externally. So we use risk to figure out where to laser focus our security effort. Where risk is defined loosely as impact times likelihood. Where impact defines just how bad things can get what is the worst case scenario for the service or thing? And then the likelihood is, what's the probable frequency that that severe impact or low impact or medium impact is gonna occur? Now, we measure that across a couple different dimensions, similar to kind of what they've been doing in the insurance industry for years, but now we have been applying some of these techniques to cybersecurity. So impact are things like, how bad would it be if the service went away? Would our partners or customers be impacted by the loss of the service? And likelihood could be things like, what are the incentives for somebody to go after this? Is that thing worth a lot of money or political capital? But likelihood indicators can also be things as simple as, does this instance contain vulnerable software? Is it easy to breach? Does it have access to other data in the system? And then we take all that and we distill it down to a standard scale. And scale scoring 
is amazing because it helps us develop a common language to communicate with the rest of the business. And that common language defines for a given incident what the impact is across three categories, reputation, financial damage, and productivity. And when you go to a team that's not security professionals and you start to talk like that, you immediately have their attention. So if we have their attention and we're using things inside of AWS, one of the things that we can actually do is start using tools inside of AWS. Security Hub actually has an out-of-the-box CIS Foundations benchmark, which is really, really good. And it'll help you benchmark things, right? That's great. Keep in mind that as we write our runbooks, as we start working on these runbooks and we start looking at how we're going to implement them actually in the cloud or in our infrastructure as a whole, not only are we writing them and keeping them, keeping them up to date based on the things that happen, but we're also changing them potentially or pushing them into the cloud as, as actual code. So in Security Hub, we have the ability to make new findings. We have the ability to change the way, that it, the way that it works a little bit. We can modify what's going on in there. So if we want to, and we should, we can write our runbooks and realize, hey, if we have an EBS volume that's unencrypted, we should probably surface that in Security Hub. That's a risk. And if we tag things appropriately, we end up with some really good ability to go ahead and look at those risks and understand how they're gonna show up in Security Hub. Security comes out of the box with more than 20 pre-built insights but the most powerful feature in Security Hub is that you can build your own. Because likelihood ind indicators and risk is going to be different from business to business. There's no real way to take something off the shelf and apply it generically to every single business. Would be nice if there was, though. Be great. So. And this is a great place for you to apply some reinforcement. Anybody go to Reinforce here? Reinforce conference in Boston? Awesome, totally great conference. Uh, my friend Beetle up there gave a great talk called Fundamentals of Security, which is not really the basics of security, but one of the most important points that he made was that sometimes you need to bring in a little extra help, right? And Beetle really likes baseball, so he uses this analogy that sometimes you need a relief pitcher, right? Because support comes in like lots of different forms. Uh, one of those forms is AWS support, like my friend Nathan, who might show up on one of your worst days. Some of those come from professional services, and my favorite is that that support can come from the open source community. Because how many baseball teams have just one relief pitcher? Beetle assures us none of them do. Now, Andrew and I can't tell you which sport baseball is. I think it's the one with the oblong ball. Baskets, the baskets? I'm I don't told. know. Yeah, baskets. baskets, I'm told. But Beetle's got a good point. So how do we do it at Amazon? One of the programs that Amazon has is actually to look at how we implement security across all of our services. Who knows how many services AWS has? Raise your hand, shout it out. See, that's the problem. Like, by the time you got your hand up, there was another one. So, as we look at this, there's really no good way for Amazon to hire enough security professionals to help us with all the services that we make, right? So if we had to have two, three, four services, security professionals in each service, we'd have a lot of security professionals devoted to just that. So we don't. We have a different way to do this. We have security guardians. And the way this works is that we have a team that works with the CISO, right? You guys all saw Steve Schmidt's keynote yesterday? Yeah? Sort of? No? Oh, that's sad. Um, go watch Steve's keynote. Um, as a side note, uh, the CISO basically helps us figure out what we need to do, right? He helps us, she helps us, depending on your company, set security policies for the company. And those security policies flow down to me. I'm one of the 100 people that work for the CISO in the CISO's org that has to figure out, okay, we've got this thing, how do we implement it? Cool. I go talk to what we call a security guardian. That security guardian is actually a developer that works on a service. Now that developer's put his hand up, her hand up, and said, you know what? I would really like to be involved more with security. They volunteer for this. And from that point of view then, that person actually owns some of that security. They take ownership of how we're going to implement security in that service. Now that then allows us to spread security out to all of our development teams. It's a really awesome program. And it helps us get everything we need. Now, 
who wants to raise their hand and ask how this relates to runbooks? Because it's a little disconnected right now, isn't it? Feel a little disconnected to you? A little bit? Say again? Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. So this relates to runbooks because as we write runbooks, if we write runbooks as just a bunch of security people, we don't include the developers. Do we have good, solid runbooks that the developers can understand that the security people can actually use to solve a development problem? I had one of the people that we were talking to before this talk, and um, they actually said that the developers are handing development problems to the security team. So to solve that, what we do is include the developers in the writing of the runbooks. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But it's really important to understand from the last slides that as we talk about the security team isn't the only point of security in the company, this is one of the ways to start that. So, how to do it not the best. Back to our little story, our little make-believe event today. So, in our wonderful little multi-account thing here, we have a security tools account, yay. We've got some services and we've got a couple of accounts we're connecting to, right? In our little story, the reality is that we have a pipeline. Who has a pipeline? CI, CD, yay, DevOps, cool. Now, this pipeline is pseudo best practices. We have a Dev Orchestrator account here in the top left. That's Dev Orchestrator account. Its intent is to go ahead and have malware checking. We're gonna do some maybe static code review. We're gonna do a little bit of security work in that orchestration account to evaluate the artifacts that our developers are making. You will note, however, in this diagram, the developers can't actually kick off the pipeline by themselves. They can't shove something into the pipeline. It has to go through the orchestrator to get to the pipeline so that we can evaluate that the pipeline is indeed being protected. That is what we call security of the pipeline. Cool? Anybody not understand? We're good? All right, cool. Now, in our little make-believe world, the developers feel like, you know what, this is a little bit heavy, this is hard for us to use, and the CEO comes into the room and he says, she says, what? What do CEOs always say? Come on, you can raise your hands and laugh about this one, because they say the same thing in every company. I think you're not going fast enough. <gasps> Certainly not. We have to go faster. I need this to get out the door by sex, by X and Z, blah, 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 blah. By, um, by next week. What happens? Well, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna remove that orchestration account, why? So the developers can actually post directly to the pipeline because that's gonna make it faster, right? Now in our little world here, there is no runbook. There is no ability to do a risk assessment. The developers just realize that, you know what? It's faster this way. Security goes, but we, yeah, wait. But they don't have grounds to make a statement. They don't have any way to tell the, to tell the CEO that they need to stop. Now, in our little environment here, who wants to make a guess? What happens? What's the risk that we're actually just incurring? Anybody want to raise their hand and guess? Issues. Maybe developers checked in something. Well, I think that's a fair, well, that's a fair risk assessment. What does this leave us with? Developers could check something in that would hurt the pipeline. So we risk our security of the pipeline. In a pipeline environment, with a pipeline with a DevOps culture, security of the pipeline is probably one of the most important things that your company can focus on. And if we look at runbooks and we look at how runbooks work, we need to make sure that we have items in the runbook that talk about how to secure this pipeline and if there is an issue with a pipeline, how we solve it. Now this wonderful company did not have that. So, let's think about this a little bit. What does that mean for our security, all of us as part of this make-believe company? Is it good for our security? So I would debate with you that for the last 20 years, we've done a lot of this. We like to build walls around our implementations because our security people don't necessarily understand what our developers are doing. So consequently, it's just easier for me to put a firewall in front of the whole thing and call it a day. Is that actually providing security? A little bit, maybe, sorta, kinda. It's not great. It's kind of looked screwed up for a couple of years now, hasn't it? If we stick firewalls in front of things and hope that that's going to provide enough security for us to defend an application on the internet, is that really a good place for us as security individuals to be? Are we going to win long term? We're not. 
So, in our little make-believe world here, the developers actually get popped. And they get popped and that malware actually pushes up through the network. Now this is sort of a thing that actually happens, so I'm gonna ask a couple of questions. What happens now? As security professionals, what do you think the next step is here? If you're the attacker, where do you aim? Production. Very directly. So how do we stop this? What did we miss? What could we have done? When we removed that critical control, we could have checked back in and we could have performed this thing that we call a rapid risk assessment, which is this process that we discussed earlier that we use that outputs that standard scale. And this can be as simple for your business as using a doc to drive this process. Honestly, that's what we do. We actually have this Google Docs-based workflow. It outputs JSON through some uh, Lambda magic, and then we turn that into risk metrics. If th these folks had stopped to check in with a risk assessment, they would have known that by relaxing that control, they gave somebody a potential pivot into their production environment through the dev pipeline. Now, they should have had a runbook that they could have pointed back to and said, hey, look, this says we need to do a risk assessment. We've made changes to our infrastructure. One of the things that's going to happen now is we need to evaluate what that risk is, and they didn't do that. But they skipped it. They skipped checking in with the risk of the decision that they made, and skipping understanding of the risk is really accepting the risk, right? You don't get a, you don't get a pass because you didn't know you had to accept the risk. Now the reality is that this actually kind of sort of happened. This was a near miss for this company. The reality was that the developers got popped. Anybody want to raise their hand and guess how the developers got popped? This is awesome. This is literally my favorite, my favorite way to do it this year. As much as I would like to say that was true, no. That was actually, that, that was my second item. He got USB, it over here. dude USB got it. Is in the parking Holy lot. crap, seriously? Who said that? I owe you a t-shirt. USBs in the parking lot is compatible with cloud. <laughs> so USBs in the parking lot actually ended up popping the developer's laptop. The developer ended up with malware on their system. The malware actually was able to, due to outside control, invest itself in the artifact. The artifact went up to dev because they were able to push it directly from dev. The dev artifact went from dev to the artifactory and then up to the pipeline account. Oops. Bad things happen. Now, in this case, they actually caught it in the pipeline account. Well, we, we all caught it in the pipeline account, and we were able to stop it from getting to production. That's really good, right? Yay. That said, this near miss gave this company the ability to sit back and say, you know what? It's time to start looking at how and what we do. So learn from their mistake. Take this moment to say, you know what? We get that this could have happened to us. We're gonna start doing runbooks and we're gonna start doing risk assessments. And we're gonna do our runbooks based on those risk assessments. So runbooks. Who knows what a runbook is? Everybody should raise your hands, please. It is a tactical review of a situation. It is a description of a situation that may occur. This is kind of the old school definition of a runbook. If we've got all of this stuff written down, if we understand how an event's going to occur, how an event can be corrected, who else is this information really good for? How about our developers? Because if we hire a new developer, does that new developer know about all the things that happened beforehand? Well, if we're really good at being secured security people, we're taking each of those events that occur in our company, we're putting them in a runbook, and we're making sure that going forward that event is handled in an appropriate way, right? So if that's true, then the developer that we've just hired can sit down and look at this runbook. It helps then to have a developer that is part of the process for building the runbooks so that you can write things in such a way that that developer actually understands it. That brings us to playbooks. Who has playbooks? couple of us. This is the strategic overview. This is what your C-levels, this is what your executives are involved in. Now, quick thought. I'm going to ask you an awkward question, and I apologize. Who here is the most loved employee at your company? Who here is a security person? You are a liar, sir. <laughs> Let's be honest. Security people are generally 
not the most loved person, specifically the incident responder. Why? Because the only time that executives talk to you is when something bad's happened. And as humans, they start to associate the bad thing with you, right? So one of the things that we can do to communicate up the chain, to communicate to our executives, is to involve them, believe it or not, in the creation of playbooks, and potentially even in runbooks. So they both know what we do, they know how we're going to do it, and then if we actually start doing simulations based on those runbooks, they'll know how we're all going to respond and communicate during that, that event. Does that make sense? This allows you as a security person, this is your opportunity as a security person both, to say that you need funding and prove it. Who doesn't get enough funding as a security person? Yeah. This is a way to prove that you actually need the funding. This is a way for you to go to the CFO and say, look, this is what we're doing. This is how it's playing out. This is actually what we're going to have to do in this situation. Wouldn't it be better if? Most of the things that I see in runbooks that actually work well are written in English that anyone can understand. It's not techie. It's not co copy and paste from one command line to the screen. It's, please, God in heaven, don't do passwords in your runbooks. But you get the point, right? So when we get to playbooks, one of the interesting things here is the RACI. Interesting way to go ahead and split up who owns what and when. It helps us all communicate. And really, that's the game of the playbooks and the runbooks, is how to communicate to each other in an event. Now, in our magic little event here, the thing that happened with our magical little company, there was no tactical review of a situation. There was no description of the situation. It just occurred. As we took this apart and started looking at what had actually happened, while the developer had indeed been owned by a USB in the parking lot, when I actually came in, the first thing that occurred was what? Do you have a runbook? The answer was no. And then I went to, okay, well, how do I take a look at your system? Okay, the developers hand me access to the bastion host. Oh, wait, no, 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 use the one in red. Why? Well, that's the one that works the best. Why? Well, it's always patched. You don't patch your other bastion hosts? Well, we do, but that one's always patched. It's patched first, and it's the most stable bastion host we have. You know what happens when I do rootkit analysis on all of these things? Yeah, the one in red is the one that's been rootkitted. And to be fair, the actor on the other side of this rootkit should hire him or herself out to do operational work because they kept that bastion host solid. <laughs> and they kept it that way, why? because all of the developers didn't know appropriate security policies and procedures, and because they'd been given access to the pipeline to push their own stuff and make sure that the pipeline was doing what they wanted it to, they copied all their SSH keys onto this bastion host. Oops. So whose fault is that? Is that the developer's fault? So we're gonna go through this a little bit quickly because we're running out of time. Runbooks are a way for us to be very simple and concise with an incident, sure, absolutely. It gives us the ability to write things down and test them repeatedly. If you go back and look at some of the things that Paul and I talked about on Monday, practice, practice, practice. If you write something down in a runbook, you need to practice it and make sure it works. Pretend that you know all the possibilities. We have two options here, right? If we're gonna write a runbook tomorrow, Everybody in the room, we're all gonna work at the same company, right? And we're all gonna be security people. Who has a company that has a security team as big as this? I do, but yeah, we're not all gonna write run books. So you look at this and you go, how can we all do this well? If we all sat down and started writing run books tomorrow and writing different events that could occur in our run book, would we get all of the possible things that could occur to our magical application or site? Not a chance, yeah, you get the point, never gonna happen. But we can agree that we will fail, but we can build the system in layers. So what we can do is that we can go ahead and accept the fact that this is the reality of the situation. These are the domains that we have. We know that if a failure in infrastructure occurs, it's going to look like this. It's going to have an issue with 
Maybe our cloud formation is a little bit funky today. Maybe we lost an ELB and ALB. Maybe it's acting differently. Maybe somebody's doing something to it and that's actually part of the services domain, right? So I can start writing my runbooks at a very generic level. I can kind of cut it out and say that we have three basic, three basic sections. We have infrastructure failure, we have services failure, and we have application failure. And because of that, we're going to start looking at these very large sections of how to fix it, right? And that gives us some direction as operationalists and as security people and as developers. Now, there's a fourth one here. Who knows what the fourth one is? I'm looking at it. People, meat suits, the things in the audience, the things on the stage. We are the issue on the for, at the far end. That is social engineering, right? We have to plan for that as well. Our runbook should take into account what happens if. So, if we write a runbook for what we know, if we focus on the things that we can do tomorrow, if we focus on the things that we know about, it works very, very well for us to communicate then with the legal team, with HR. Who here is from Europe? So you guys know all about GDPR, right? Nope. Okay, well, fine. Maybe you ought to talk to your legal team. <laughs> Get the point? Because I sure as heck don't. When we talk about HR, if we talk about HR and we're talking about incident response, who here's from Europe? Who here's from somewhere other than America? United States, sorry. Um, as we look at this, do you do your incident response in US East 1? If you do your incident response in US East 1, do you know what local issues that you've broken? Do you know what local laws you've broken? Do you know what corporate status, corporate statutes you've broken? Because you've taken data from one region of the world and put it in another. Does your HR team think that that's okay? Are you allowed to look at someone's laptop? There are a lot of things that go into this that we need to make sure we open up the boxes for before the day of. So please make sure that you include your legal team and your HR team. And then we simulate events. So when we simulate events, one of the things that we all need to make sure that we understand is that we don't talk down to the people that we're working with. We need to accept the things that they say and try to understand what they're saying and try to make believe that what they're saying is possible at very least in our little make-believe world. So one of the things that I do often in a SERS is to pretend that someone has an S3 bucket that suddenly has been made public. Even though there is no S3 bu buckets on their particular architecture, it's still one of those things. So if you work with legal, if you work with HR, if you work with your executives, part of this exercise is making sure that they feel empowered to give you information, okay? This is decidedly a communication level thing. Now, we understand and we've already talked a little bit about runbooks and how we need to specify security is more than just security, right? If we take runbooks and we include our developers, we've doubled the amount of effort, we've doubled the amount of impact we can have for the runbook and for our security team. If we continue to do this, we can start including more and more people, including, uh, increasing the amount of power, the amount of force that we can go ahead and apply to many of these things. We can begin to double our team sizes. We can start to make things much, much larger. And security is not just a group of four people in the basement that nobody wants to talk to. Security is something that we're all doing. It becomes a cultural change, right? We've done something now through runbooks and playbooks that has affected the culture of the entire company. So I would urge all of you to try to do your runbooks, to try to do your playbooks from this point of view. And it's not gonna be easy. I'm not telling you that it is, but it is something that can change a culture. So, as we begin to do these things, as we begin to try to play with our runbooks, we actually do have the opportunity to make changes to our runbooks. Runbooks are never done. They continue to change every day. This is generally the response metric, the response system that we would see from a runbook. The reality of a runbook is that it shouldn't just be a bunch of paper, a bunch of Word documents. Eventually, we should start to automate that runbook. And this is generally what that automation procedure looks like. You have items on the left that show us what's going on, sensory types of things if this were a human body. We have the brain in the middle that makes choices and actions. You will note that we have a lambda function that fires off. We have systems, uh, simple systems manager that fires off. And the first thing they do is communicate. So again, point to note, runbooks are about communication. In an event, the most important thing you can do is communicate. Now that brings us to the Fun Geek Demo.
Yeah, so that's a, that's a lot of information, right? That's a lot of good information about how to build runbooks. And now let's look at how we can use all of that practical information to implement that as technology, right? So we know from reInvent's past and present that we can use technology to create these powerful workflows that use APIs and events to do things like automatic remediation. It all starts on the left with something like guard duty or security hub saying something is wrong or suspicious. And then we take that event and we pass it into something that can run some code. In this case, this year, it's AWS step functions. And what's new is that we're going to do the demo on Fargate. Fargate's great, right, because it's a totally scalable, cost-effective way to deploy containers in the cloud. Scales with the business, you don't have to take care of any of the infrastructure. But it presents some unique challenges when it comes to doing incident response, like the fact that we use hybrid VPCs, and we can't get interactive shells on these containers. Maybe. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to create a system that's resilient, that can organize around a potential threat, stay up, do the thing the business needs it to do, right? We want to be the security engineer in the box on the right that says, I can help the business engineer to be well-architected, I can understand the risk, and I can add value here to what you're trying to do as a business. This is the moment where we all understand that we're not being the office of no, we're being the office of how can I help you. So before we get into the demo, I just want to point out that this work is built on top of the work of another Amazonian. His GitHub handle is up there, and he did much of the early work I'm going to demonstrate on how to get shells in Fargate containers. But the important part is that this really proves that you can perform incident response on anything if you just think about it long enough. So our scenario. Imagine that you are a cat. You are an honest cat who uses Fargate to run their business. Our fictional business today is called Fluffy Kitten Security. You're an honest, hardworking cat that's just trying to run your security business. And maybe you see where this is headed, maybe you heard yesterday about the talk, but your biggest unfriendly actor, threat actor, and enemy is the fluffy dogs. And there have been a few cyber attacks on your website that all came in the form of website defacement. You don't necessarily know how this is happening, but you suspect that it is, in fact, the dogs. So what do we do here, right? We start with a risk assessment. So we look at the architecture. This is the architecture for Fluffy Kitten Security. It uses Fargate, it uses Route 53, it uses health checks, and that's pretty much it. So pretty easy to recover, right? I actually went through and I wrote a rapid risk assessment for Fluffy Kitten Security, if anyone is interested in reading it. But the bottom line of that rapid risk assessment is because we are a security company, the risk to the business is maximum if the website is defaced. People start to lose confidence in us as a security company. We lose customers. So we need to take evasive action anytime the website is down or defaced. And so I took that, and then I used my friend Nathan's runbook template here to write a runbook. Don't worry if the text is a little small. I'm gonna blow up the important part right now. So these are our steps to troubleshoot and fix Fluffy Kitten Security's website, which are just some general actions that you might take in Fargate, like let's re-trigger the last known good deployment of those containers. But in order to really know that the dogs were the ones that carried out the cyber attack, we need to gather and preserve evidence. So we're gonna use automation to ensure that we do that, right? Because if you remember uh, last, year. last year's talk, yeah. five security automations, humans are awesome unless you want consistent results. So the last thing you wanna be doing at three in the morning is going through these runbooks one command at a time, right? So the best way to really do this is with code. So let's look at how that would look. So we start with an event. Events can come from guard duty but they can also come from things like ticketing systems. Ticketing systems can integrate with all of these things via APIs, and they can output events that look very similar to guard duty findings. The most important things there being that 
The guard duty finding will give us the resource type, and it will give us the tags for the resource. And in our demo environment here, we have enriched those tags with the level of risk for that workload. So I'm gonna just kick off my demo here. Please be aware this is a live demo. We're gonna see if this actually works live. So this is our event going into step functions. There it goes. Now I'll go back. So this is what that looks like. It is a step functions workflow that is mapped loosely to the phases of the NIST cybersecurity framework. It starts with a notification. We're gonna call out to Slack and we're gonna let everybody else know, hey, we're performing IR on this workload. If you see something weird going on, it's the IR team, not the attacker. Don't double report this. Then we're gonna move into the detect phase. We're gonna use those tags to go and inventory all of the running Fargate tasks that are part of that workload. And we're going to pull those into that event structure. We could also at this time correlate this with additional risk information or likelihood indicators to change that scale score. This is just a little bit of what the code looks like for that. It works from the task definition out to the actual task itself. Keep in mind that you don't have to take pictures of that one. We'll actually, uh, Andrew's actually got all of that up on his website. Yeah, the slides are, are available after this and so is the source. Um, after that, we're going to reach out to Fargate and we're going to put the site back to normal because the business has identified we don't want customers seeing the defaced version of the site. So we're going to get the defaced workloads out of Route 53. We're going to scale out with the known good last deployment. But we're also going to do a very sane thing here, which is that we're going to implement a guardrail that says this should never be larger than seven instances of the website because sometimes IR processes can fail and you don't want to be running a thousand instances of fluffy kitten security because your IR process was non-deterministic. So guardrails are important anytime that you think about this level of automation. And then we're going to go run a maximum response plan. So going back to those risk and likelihood indicators, based on the severity of the finding, we might do something that's computationally not intensive, like kick off a vulnerability scan on the container that was running the workload. But in our case, this is a maximum risk finding, so we're gonna kick off a packet capture inside of those containers. We're going to generate an STS token take 60 seconds worth of PCAP data, and then we're gonna output it to S3. So this is just a little bit of the code that powers that. It's very, very simple. We can use the standard SSM run command facilities to kick that off, along with a little bit of templating that lets us generate that one-time STS token so that we're not potentially giving an attacker a privilege credential here. Then we're gonna process those packet captures also using step functions in parallel. We're gonna reassemble the TCP stream and we're gonna output JSON that's geo-enriched that we could potentially use later to correlate with threat intelligence feeds. And we're gonna store that in S3 along with our original evidence. And then at the end, we're gonna recover. We're gonna put Fargate back to the way it was before we started the IR process we're gonna scale back down. We're gonna clean up those containers because we're done with them now. We got all the evidence off that we needed. We can terminate them and get them out of the environment. And then at the very end, we're gonna go ahead and let everybody know that we're done in the same communication channel that we let them know that we started the IR process. And we could potentially even ask them a question using the Slack API here with SIGV4 URLs, allowing a user to say, yes, the site has been recovered, it looks normal now. Or if they say no, we could potentially change the site to point to a generic fail page or something that's less damaging for the business. Or escalate. Or escalate, kick off a pager duty pipeline. Sky's the limit, kind of where you could go from here in another, another step function workflow. So that's a little bit of code. It really does a lot of stuff and it demonstrates that we can do IR. So we'll come back to our state machine here. Here, 
here's our hey, step look, it function. <laughs> that, so the first uh, time we did this, we got a little red box at the bottom. That ran, uh, ran all the way to fruition, and you can see it went through all the steps here. Uh, it went into a choice where it decided to run the maximum response plan. If we go out to S3 now, we should actually see the artifacts that it gathered from the container. So there are all of those PTP dumps. This has been running continuously in both JSON and Apache Parquet format that we could query using Athena. But also, we have the original assets in case we want to carve those PCAPs later for additional uh, information that might be valuable. One should point out here at this point that you've got IPs that you can say are, in many cases, at very least gray-listed. We don't know what's going on, but we think they're probably dirty IPs. So we can go ahead and add those to guard duty to give us some more filtration going forward, more information about those IPs every time they connect to the site. We can add them to the WAF blocking table. We can add, do all sorts of things at this point. We could also toss them in a BI tool like QuickSight, and we could create dashboards that we could include in our incident report. We could turn them into the FBI. That too. So what do we just do there? We understood the risk for the workload that we were running. We created a plan in a totally non-technical manner to mitigate our maximum risk. We used step functions to automate that plan all the way to completion, auto recovery, and we ultimately created an adaptable system that responded to events based on a risk likelihood mapping and organized around a threat. And we demonstrated best practices by making the automation safe we leveraged humans for decision making. We implemented code-based guardrails. We logged all the actions that we took by leveraging things like Systems Manager, so every command that we ran was logged in CloudTrail, and we preserved the evidence that we collected in its original form, which is very important for forensics. So all of that code is available at the links here. The slide deck, of course, will be available with the video on SlideShare. We have a few minutes to take questions. I am Andrew Krug, and this is Nathan Case, and we thank you for attending our session.